You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. What is the thread that connects the intersection between good and evil, right and wrong, and those in that orbit? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. My guest on this episode is Reed Farrell Coleman. He has been described as a hard-boiled poet by NPR's Maureen Corrigan and the Noir Poet Laureate in the Huffington Post. And Reed Farrell Coleman, welcome to the program. Uh, Very happy to be here. Thank you. Now, I love that. Now, do you have a poetic background? Did you actually write poetry at one time? I actually started as a poet. Um, I, I was published when I was in my teens. I, I went to Brooklyn college. I studied with the poet, David Lehman. I sat in on classes given by John Ashbery and this unknown guy named Allen Ginsberg. Little known. Little known. In fact, he read poetry out of my Norton anthology and I was such an obnoxious kid. I didn't ask him to autograph it. Um, yeah. So I thought I'd get a regular job. And I would do what a lot of writers have done, have a regular job and publish poetry on the side. Because as you know, if you want to be poor, poetry <laughs> poetry is definitely the way to go. It is the way to go. Let's talk about some of those jobs before you became a novelist. And I think a terrific novelist, by the way. Thank you. You rubbed shoulders with the mafia, JFK. You were a Gerber baby food salesman. Babies are our business and they <laughs> have been for over 50 years. A weekend gypsy cab driver, a short order cook, and a waiter. Now, here's where I'm disappointed. You didn't sell Bibles or uh, encyclopedias door-to-door or vacuum cleaners. So what were you missing in terms of that background? And how did that background lead the foundation, if it did, to what you became as a writer? Well, first of all, growing up in Brooklyn kind of helped. Crime uh, was kind of lived side by side. I didn't grow up in a bad neighborhood. But crime was always something on the very edges of life. Uh, you know, in eighth grade, I had a friend who was stabbed to death on a city bus or just getting off a city bus. Um, so crime was always present. There was always something I thought of. I was always a paper reader, right. a newspaper reader. Right. Which uh, newspaper, by the way, because you came from Brooklyn? Oh, uh, Which newspaper? The, the Daily News and the Post. On, you know, not the post that exists now. Um, But so I was a current events guy and crime is always a big part of the news. Uh, Working at Kennedy Airport, you know, if you've seen the movie Goodfellas, those are the people I work with. They were all named Vinny. Um, It was and a lot of stuff used to fall off the truck. And I used to say if it fell off the truck on Tuesday, I was wearing it on Thursday. Um, So and that was actually a very interesting thing because I actually had to take graft and kickback because otherwise the truckers wouldn't do business with me. Um, the statutes of limitations are over now, so I can tell you that. Well, let's talk about the business of books and writing and publishing. What I like to try to do is go back as far as I can with the time that I have allotted to me in terms of my preparation, and look back at previous books. It kind of gives me an insight to where a writer started or the middle of their career and where they are currently. The two books that I looked at were first The Hollow Girl, which I read, 
and also where it hurts. And it's interesting because the Hollow Girls protagonist is Mo Prager, correct? Correct. And the protagonist in Where It Hurts is Gus Murphy, is that correct? That's correct. So here's my thought because I'm actually staring at the cover of Where It Hurts. And there's a branch there. At least it appears to be kind of a branch. Can I make the case that they both come from the same tree but different branches? Well, if I'm the tree, they certainly come from the same tree. So uh, I've heard authors forever deny books are autobiographical. And of course, in some sense, all books are autobiographical because where are you really farming the emotional uh, crop to, to imbue your characters with their emotions? So even if the characters are nothing like you per se, the only person you, who's ever experienced your feelings is you. So uh, you know how you feel and your experience with your feelings is the only way they can really – you can imbue your characters with real feelings. So yes, I'm the trunk of the tree and all of my characters are in some ways branches of that tree. You know, I think about uh, my daughter many years ago when she was in elementary school and she was loud, to put it mildly. And the teacher used to say to her – my daughter's name is, still is Jesse – that – when inside, use your indoor voice and save your outdoor voice for the playground. As a writer, as the characters you develop, do, they, do you use your indoor voice or your outdoor voice? I use their voices. See, that's the, that's the strange thing. Although it's autobiographical in some sense, uh, the first, one of the first things I do with a character is try and hear their voice, not my voice. Uh, I'm not interested. I will say the lines I, I write for them. Right. In their voices, uh, because if I can't hear their voice, I can't write them as a character. So uh, for me, I build characters from the inside out, and one when I know I've done it right is when I can hear their voice. I can hear them saying the lines that are in the book. So if you hear their voice in the lines, does that voice in your head make you alter the lines to a certain degree? Sometimes. You know, you've also heard char- many writers. I'm sure you've interviewed hundreds of writers. Um, and they'll say, the r- character won't let me do that. I try to write them out, and the character won't let me write them out. And I found that to be true, and it works for their voices. Um, they shape, of course, it's my unconscious, but in some ways the characters shape themselves. Once I give them life, just like my kids, they kind of go the way they want to go. Uh, I, today I was writing on a, a new book, and it's the character went away. He wanted to go. That was different than the way I'd planned for him to go. You know, I think you are an acute observer of the human condition. And let me reference another writer, then tell you where I'm coming from. Colin Harrison is a fine writer and also highly respected editor. And he had a character that was aging and dying. And he based it on remembering his father in the later years of his life. And his fa- and he said. I remember my father laying on the bed covered by a nest of white hair in the groin area. And the reason why I reference that is because in The Hollow Girl, there is an older gentleman, a survivor of the Holocaust in the concentration camps, and he's also dying. Israel Roth, I believe his name is. And your protagonist, Mo Prager, is looking at him and saying he's so old, his skin is stretched out on his arms, almost entirely covering up the number of tattoos, because you know in your concentration camp the tattoos were the numbers. 
And I thought that observation was so great on your part. It's just a little bit of thing in the book, but I think that speaks to you in terms of your observations as a writer. Well, thank you. Would you like a job as my PR person? <laughs> well, maybe after this, if it pays well, I'll take you up on that. Um, no, I, I've also, I think, I have, first of all, thank you very much. That's a lovely compliment, and it, it, I take that uh, as one, that is one of my favorite compliments, actually, being insightful about life and being an observer of life. But the way I express that is part of my poetry background. Um, and I've taught, I taught at Hofstra for a while and I've taught right. for Mystery Writers of America. And what you find out is that writers tend to think more description is better. And what I've discovered is less, less is more. That if you can make one observation like that the skin was so loose and it hung so that it obscured his numbered tattoo, that says a lot more than if I went from head to toe right. and described everything about him, people's eyes glaze over. It's one simple observation using economy is a really important thing when it comes to description. So is it fair to say then in what you do in a small way or a big way, less is more? Well, I have some critics who would disagree with that. I, I think in terms of description, I believe less is more. I think in other areas, uh, you know, it's funny. I am friendly with Lee Child who has well, – once said to me, Reed, if you tone down the art a little bit, right. you might sell more. So uh, in that sense, I, I, tr I, I believe art, writing is an art – and that displaying art is not a bad thing. But here, giving advice from one of the biggest sellers in the world, telling me maybe less would be a little more. For the last time, if you don't mind, I want to reference Colin Harrison. Colin Harrison said, if there's a blonde in a hotel lobby smoking a cigarette, she's dangerous, that's trouble. You've got some very dangerous women in some of the books that you write. Yeah, well... Women are dangerous to men because – and I think this is expressed in uh, – we can see that now in the Me Too movement and whatever in that m women have a power over men and that frightens men. So it doesn't have to be the hot blonde with legs up to here or smoking right. a cigarette. I think men recognize early on in their lives – that, um, you know, women uh, have this incredible power over mm -hmm. them. And I, I mean, I, the, and, I, and I have one of the greatest things I ever observed was uh, that taught me a lesson. Um, when I was about 14, uh, I was visiting my, my oldest brother at a graduate school, with well, the graduate school he attended. He, he went to Rockefeller University. And there in his apartment – was one somebody whose name I won't mention, but was uh, one of the most brilliant philosophers uh, whose IQ was in the 200 range. And sitting with him and my brother was my brother's wife and her two sisters. And this guy, not my brother, the, the gen, his friend, acted like a total putz because he was dazzled 
right. by the women. And it was an interesting lesson for me to see as a like 14-year-old, the, the, the power that women can have even over, uh, you know, really smart, really sharp men. Um, so I, I don't have, I don't, not someone who believes that women have to be quote unquote beautiful or long legged to be dangerous. Women in g general, in some ways are a threat to men. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the number of a 200 IQ. My mother was very close to having a genius IQ and was probably the smartest person in the whole family, uh, probably more gifted than her offspring were. But it's, I read something about people who have ex exceedingly high IQs, that they're almost cursed because they can't relate to the real world. They're just too smart, and they tend not to make major contributions. I mean, there's always exceptions, but the people in the middle of the bell-shaped curve a lot of times make a lot more well, contributions than people that have IQs in the stratosphere. Well, you and I obviously read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers because that's the, one of the major points he makes in the book is that. Um, but, you know, I, <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never know. Well, so. neither will I, so feel <laughs> free to be we're in the same company in that yeah. respect. You know, I'm interested in what I call archetypes. Now, are your characters archetypes? I think of uh, the Reacher books by Lee Child, Michael Connolly, and, and Bosch. Bosch. I can go down, down the line, but is that part of what we could describe as archetypes? They represent something beyond just the character in a book. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I, I believe in, in, with a small a, my protagonists are archetypal, but not with big A's, not like uh, Reacher or Bosch or Kinsey Malone, not, not like any of those characters. In fact, what I enjoy in my books is taking those archetypes and kind of flipping them on their ears. So, for instance, Mo Prager, uh, a Jewish cop, right? Most uh, PIs were former policemen but detectives. Mo never made detective. In right. fact, that's one of the things that drives him. That's one of his motivating forces when he becomes a PI. The one thing he looks back at and regrets most is never making uh, a detective. He's married. He has a family. He has a mortgage. He has another business. Most PIs, in, most archetypal PIs are, are men who are Christ, white Christian men, alcoholics, or near alcoholics, uh, eager to use their fists and a gun, that's not Mo. So I like taking the archetype and kind of flipping it around a little bit. Uh, Nelson DeMille, I think we've all heard of Nelson DeMille, said about you, he said, Coleman is as good as Chandler, Hammett, and Ed McBain. Now, I'm just curious your reaction to that, because that's mentioning three heavyweights and putting you in the same class as those three people. Well, I'm still paying Nelson <laughs> for that blurb. No, I mean, that's a lovely thing to say. Uh, blurbs are a funny thing. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on blurbs. Yeah. And some uh, of them are for the right reason, and some of right. them are just business No, decisions. I mean, that was, that was a lovely thing for Nelson to say, but um, – it's a bit of hyperbole, but it's hyperbole I will gladly accept. Ian Rankin, a terrific writer from Scotland, once said, if you want to learn about a country, a region, a state, a city, a locality, read crime fiction. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I know what he meant by it. 
Uh, first of all, he's a nice guy. I, I know him. He's a he's a lovely guy. Um, and uh, but don't have a drinking contest with him. Um, it, because in crime fiction, more than I think any other genre, or necessarily in literary fiction, um, you you need the setting is so crucial to the to the protagonist right. to the crime itself. Certain crimes fit where they're committed, um, and hence, so you know, someone is killed with a scythe or a sickle. That's not happening in the middle of Brooklyn. Um, someone is, you know, now though with an opioids, you know, opioid epidemic, the opioid deaths can be anywhere. It's everywhere. Um, so, so crimes fit their location. Uh, so authors spend a lot of time, uh, crime authors when they're in their settings because, oh God, this is so cliche, but it's true, which is why it's a cliche is setting in crime fiction is another character. And I'm, I, I'm as guilty of that as any crime fiction because if you read my books, um, people who don't, who don't live in that place, that's the thing we have to entertain. Our job is to entertain so that you have to make a book and somewhat universal. So someone is living in Milwaukee right, right. still has to relate to Brooklyn. So I have to make Brooklyn or Suffolk County, like in the Gus books, it has to be alive for them or the books don't make sense. That's really interesting. I believe if you ask 100 readers a question, you don't want the same answer or the same review from that 100 people. I prefer 100 different responses. 100 different reviews. That means people are bringing their own process into what they're reading. This is what interests me about Where It Hurts, the start of a year series with Gus Murphy. And you kind of touched upon that. I think this book, in a sense, is for almost two different audiences, not in a major way, but a minor way if you're a careful reader. If you're a fan of Reed Farrell Coleman and you don't live in the metropolitan area, you read the book one way. It's a terrific read, and it, it, the narrative really, really moves, and it's got an explosive ending. But if you're from Long Island, especially Suffolk County, and you know where some of the story, in my opinion, has antecedents in the DA's office with a prominent detective with a stolen duffel bag and a young criminal on the outside – were you pulling for some of that? And that's what I brought into that because I remember reading about the incident that I'm referencing, and I think you kind of pulled on that. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I've admitted that from the beginning that, uh, you know, we get asked all the time, all authors, where do you get your ideas from? And authors struggle with that, terribly answering that question. My answer is everywhere. I get my ideas everywhere and most prominently from the newspaper. Right. Um, and if you've lived in Suffolk County for the last 10 years, you you've got a lot of stuff to draw yeah, on. You've got a lot of stuff to draw on and you cannot miss um, the parts of this book. I mean, I draw on what's happened to with Burke, who's the chief of police, with Spoda, the DA. There you go. Uh, I draw on John Pius murder case, which is a hor horrific, terrible thing that happened in Smithtown. So if you're from here or if you live here, yes, you're right. It's a, it's a different kind of read for you because there are touchstones here for people who live in Suffolk or right. on Long Island. Right. 
you know, I'm a big fan of Daniel Silva. So every book he's in the series with Gabriel Alon, the Israeli spy, fascinates me. But if you jump into the middle of it or towards the more recent books, there's a tremendous backstory as, as the character goes through the process of what he's experiencing and in aging, in a sense, real time. I'm, I'm thinking about The Hollow Girl because I read that book, and that's the last of his series of Mo Prager. How do you keep your audience informed if they haven't read the other books in the series? Are, we, are they missing something? Well, I mean, I'd be lying if I said they weren't missing something, which is why they should go out and buy the whole series <laughs> and buy several copies of the whole series. Um, so authors, you know, you know, in some ways we're salespeople. So uh, – but it, it would be dishonest of me to say you don't miss some things if you don't read the earlier books. But the – trick to writing a series unless you write it like Lee Child's Jack Reacher right. because what what Lee does is really a serial standalone. Each book is, stands on its own because there's not that much backstory in each one. You just kind of know who Reacher is and then he puts him in a different setting yeah. and then the book is of that particular Reacher in that place. Whereas most people like me who write a series – you have to give people backstory. Um, what I did was halfway through the nine books, I realized I was choking the story I was writing with so much backstory yeah. that I had to find ways to eliminate characters and get, get end those stories that I had started and move on. Move on is a fascinating phrase and it gives me a – the idea for my next question. When you write that many books, do you have to go back to the beginning so you don't make mistakes? It's like when you shoot a sequence of a movie and if you're shooting out a sequence, you have to go back to make sure you didn't make a mistake in terms of the thread. Do you have to deal with that when you have a long-going series? Well, it's funny. That's one of the reasons I did that moving on thing was because it was getting impossible to make sure I was being consistent through five, you know, okay, this happened, then this happened here. I have a friend, Hank Philippi Ryan, who was writing a series and she says in my first book, my character was 42 years old for a year and a half. So, you, you know, there were also the chapter one, she had blue eyes and in chapter 83, she had green eyes. Well, that's it's, contacts. Yeah, but yes. <laughs> you can Good. do that. <laughs> you know, maybe I should have told her that or she wouldn't have had to change <laughs> there the whole you book. Go. There you go. No, it's a it's a very strange thing. So um some people keep Bibles for themselves. Now I had a really unusual experience in that I took someone someone's series over, uh the Robert B. Parker right. Jesse Stone books. Which is your newest book. Yes, my latest book, uh, the bitter Robert B. Parker's The Bitterest Pill, which was number twelve on the New York Times bestseller list this past week. Um and when people say to me, how do you write a bestseller? I say, put Robert B. Parker's name on it. Um, so there I had to re read all of the books that came before yeah, him. Right. And, and then I had to be very careful. Luckily, Bob Parker was not a guy who put a lot of backstory in his books. So I didn't have to learn a lot of backstory. But I would hate to have somebody take over one of my series because they'd really have – they would definitely have to take notes. When I was a child, my family moved across the country from New York City. We came out of Spanish Harlem, the Upper East Side. My grandmother had a bodega, a Jewish woman with a bodega in Spanish Harlem. 
There's a lot of stories there. And we ended up in Seattle for a relatively short period of time. And I had a room that was quite spare. The only thing in my room was a radio. And I love that radio because a radio allowed imagination. You had to put your own self into that. Now, I think of you, I think of, of Rebus, Ian Rankin's book. I think of other characters. We don't know what they look like. How important is that in terms of writer not to be so descriptive about what your character looks like? Well, I think it's, it's writer dependent. You know, geez, I always think Lee Child should pay me for promoting his books. But he's such a good example of not what I do. Um, you know what Reacher looks like. He's in fact, bit, he's, bit, he's, well, he's six. Not, he's, he's not Tom Cruise. No, he's <laughs> right. We, he's six six. He weighs about two fifty. He's not handsome necessarily. He's got scar tissue on his face. Well, he's the kind of guy when he walks into a room, he commands everybody's attention. Um, so there are writers who believe doing that is really important, and I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum. I want readers to see who they see. Okay. Uh, in fact, we had an interesting exchange before when talking about Gus Murphy. As I, you said, oh, you, I, I could tell you were thinking Gus is about 50. And what did I say? What did I say? Yeah, and I said he was about 40. Well, there you go. Yeah, so, so I don't describe because I want – and I never, never, never tell readers who ask, who do you picture playing Gus? Oh, oh sorry. Uh, you, who do you picture playing Gus or Mo? I never, ever, ever tell them because I want them to see who they see, not who I see. I've always tried to – with uh, guests I've had for previous series like Writers on the Vine, my opening line is we're going to explore the art and craft of storytelling. Now, where it hurts, early on we know – that there's been a death of um, a son, of Guff Mercy, Guff Mercy, Gus Murphy's son. Say that three times. Yeah, I will. <laughs> that was the first couple of times didn't come out so well. Yeah. But that's where I'm going. But it took about 100 pages to where we learn how the young man died. Why did you wait so long to let us know? Because it wasn't important. It was important to let people speculate. Just like not telling people um, what Gus looks like. Right? Right. It's the same thing. Um, you know, you're, you're taught in, – and one thing I hope you notice is there are not crimes on the first page in my, most of my books. But you're taught when you write crime fiction, oh, you have to have a body on page one. That's the cliche, right? Got to have a body on page one. Except there are other ways to draw people into books. Well, there's one of them is what does he look like? What does that detective look like? Why did his son die? How did his son die? And um, poignancy will will grab readers just as much as blood will. So I tend to have some poignancy early in a book and to leave questions that readers want answers to instead of, oh, there's a body and how what happened. I, I want people to care about my protagonist first and then the crime second. Are you also addressing what I call survivor's guilt in some of your books, but especially Where It Hurts and also The Hollow Girl? There are some very tragic deaths that have impact on your protagonists and even beyond people in their orbit. Well, um, you know, I, it, it's a funny thing. There, there's a whole subgenre of mysteries called cozies. Right. Um, and which my friend S.J. Roseanne says, in which someone is murdered but no one is hurt. 
um, it's a puzzle. It's a, it's a rebus. It's figuring stuff out. Um, that doesn't interest me. Human emotion interests me. People's reactions to thing interest to tragic events interest me. It's why war books are interesting. It's why police books, because it's people living during a time of heightened emotion. And there are very few things that heighten emotion like the death of someone close to them. That's an interesting segue. I'll tell you why, because let's address something, death and funerals and going to the uh, cemetery. And you have a really interesting observation, which I think was beautifully written, very simplistic, but is very relatable. And I'll try to quote as best as probable. Big cemetery burials, rows and rows of hearses lined up waiting for their turn to enter the cemetery, like fidgeting customers at the deli counter at the supermarket. That line is pure gold in terms of my reading of what you did. Well, that's pretty autobiographical because I – I remember the observation. I was it, – it's tough when my parents died. You're so involved when it's your parents. You're not really paying attention to the to – the, you can't stand back, which is what writers do better than most people is they, they're at arm's length. They, they're always on their own shoulders, I like right. to say. But at my aunt's funeral, whom I loved, um, what I noticed was we were at this big Jewish cemetery – and it was a lineup yeah. to get in. Yeah. And it was like, I wish they would have given numbers out, like the deli counter at Wallbounce. It, it struck me as this is such a solemn, significant event in people's lives. But it's also kind of this crazy, morbid, financial, you know, transactional thing where you're lined up. Like next, next, it was very strange. <laughs> like taking the ticket and Sunday morning at the bakery. Right. It right. was very odd. And I, I've always liked to ask one question of writers. If you had no pressure, didn't have to worry about your agent, didn't have to worry about book sales, didn't have to worry about your editors and the publisher. If you can write a book under a different name, would you do that? Who wrote, I believe, if the book was called Hose Monkey? I did. And what was that name under that uh, book? Tony Spinoza. Why did you do that? For two reasons. One, f- perfectly uh, transactional and financial. I was under contract and could not write a book competing with myself. Um, that happens with authors. You realize that if they write two books in a year, they're contractually obliged not to compete with themselves. So um, – I I did that and it was also – it was a bit of a departure and it was a much more violent book right. than I usually write. And I wanted to go in a place where, you know, writing as me, I wouldn't be able to go. My last question and I thank you so much for coming in for – Oh, my pleasure. The Artful Periscope. If sometimes is the best question the one not asked or the one not answered? You know, I could screw around with you and not answer that. <laughs> I, 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 I have no problem. You know what? I believe in dead air sometimes is beautiful. But if you want to do that, it's fine. If you want to respond, that's fine too. I, I think it's situational. I think it depends on the book and it depends on the character. And sometimes leaving something open-ended is the best thing. And sometimes the hard answer is the best answer. Reed Farrell Coleman, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. 
um, you know, and I expect the check next week. That'd be fine. It may bounce once or twice, <laughs> but I'll be happy to get it to you. Well, I need something to play handball with. So. <laughs> All right. I'm Larry Davidson. You've been listening to The Artful Periscope. We'll explore a lot of good stuff. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where you explore the new craft of storytelling. We're going to turn the corner at home with independent film actor Francis Like. Francis, welcome to the program. Larry, it's good to see you again. Thank you for the invite. You know, as a previous guest, there were a lot of turns in his life and his career. He just didn't was born a novelist. A lot of different jobs that led to what he became. What led up to you becoming a film actor? Oh, I suppose uh, you can look back. Uh, well, you can go back to uh, perhaps maybe... Uh, Oh, the first Christmas play, I suppose, in first grade. Uh, and then, uh, I guess, in high school, I had joined uh, Maskers um, for a day. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I actually quit the next day. Uh, I just I just didn't think that uh, – it wasn't the right fit at the right time. And uh, so from there, I had gotten involved with uh, – Theater, community theater on Long right, Island. Right. Uh, so I had a music instructor, and she suggested that I uh, speak with her daughter and son-in-law, who had a theater company in Seacliff called uh, A Small Company in America. And that's where it started. You know, She introduced me to the uh, group, and they pulled me in. And so I started with community theater. How aggressive do you have to be? To get in your get your foot in the door in terms of getting auditions. Now you exist in the world of independent film, but you've been with some relatively big names. So, did you have to be a very aggressive? Did it just happen, or do you have to kind of really, really push to get noticed? You have to um, build relationships. You have to network. You uh, you network. You build relationships, and you. Um, you 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 stick around with the people that are uh, uh, working in film indie films, and uh, you go to different. Uh, at least for myself, I've been to different uh, filmmaking uh, network groups, and uh, you 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 have to make suggestions, or you you let people know. You let the writers and directors and producers know that uh, you're available. Now, what is the audition process like? You say you, you're being, being kind of circumspect and or maybe a little too, too uh, modest about that. You know, you, when you go in front of somebody, you have to kind of put yourself out there. Is it difficult? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, I got I got to tell you a quick story, okay? And uh, this was after uh, – back in uh, the beginning of the uh, Hamptons International Film Festival where I had – um, volunteered that first year in 1993 in, in uh, ticketing, and I came back the following year in, uh, in uh, special events. But right around that time, I remember seeing, and I think it was USA Today, uh, a story about uh, the upcoming uh, production of 
interview with the vampire. Tom Cruise? Yeah. Yeah, Tom Cruise and I think uh, I think Brad Pitt. Right. Okay. So the story in the uh, USA Today had mentioned that uh, they're, uh, they're going to be having a, uh, an open national cast call uh, down in New Orleans for some uh, male and female speaking roles. And I, I said to myself, I got to do this. I can do this. How old were you when you did this or try to do this? Oh, my God. I guess I was in my uh, – somewhere – actually, how old was I at that time? So, somewhere in my late 20s, you know, 29, 30 or something to that effect. And um, so I bought a ticket, flew down to uh, New Orleans, and still convinced in my head that I, I actually – I said, once they, they see me and they hand me the sides – I'm in for whatever, whatever role this is. I mean, it, it, they didn't specify what the roles were. They just said they had a handful of speaking roles and having an open national call. So I went down there and I saw for like yards and yards, it was people wrapped around all these blocks uh, waiting to uh, read. So, uh, you know, you're, you're waiting for hours online. When mm. I finally got in there, since there were so many people, they couldn't handle it. So essentially... There were a few people behind a desk, and they just said, drop your resume and uh, just state your name. And that's all you did, and you left. And I was like, I was totally, I was in shock. I drove, you know, I, I rode all the way down here, uh, flew all the way down here, uh, thinking that it was going to be an entirely different uh, process of uh, auditioning. So that kind of turned me off. So, you know, I knew there had to be a different way of doing this, so... I realized what has worked for me is personal relationships with people that are involved with film here on Long Island, whether they're writers, producers, uh, uh, of course, directors, and more on a, uh, make it more on a personal level of uh, knowing somebody uh, versus just going on these cast calls. You know, that's interesting. You say know somebody. Sometimes it takes a long time to quote unquote know somebody. How did you go about that? Well, um, it's, the, there's a phrase called schmoozing. Did you have to schmooze? I mean, what did you have to do to get noticed and people pay attention to you so they trust you for their film? You go, you go to film festivals. Or I, I used to go to the, uh, the uh, of course, the Long Island Film Festival, the Stony Brook Film Festival, the Hamptons Film Festival. Um, and you meet, you know, you see different people that you'll see at all, all these different festivals and you'll, you'll realize there are different writers and producers and directors and uh, you kind of stay in the loop. And then, as I had mentioned there, there were uh, a couple of uh, uh, meeting groups, if you will, uh, networking uh, right. filmmaker groups. And some of those were monthly. And uh, that's, that's essentially how I stayed in, in the loop and how I got to know these various artists and finding out, you know, hey, I've got, I got uh, a movie coming up. Would you like to read this part? Uh, and that's how I did it. I, I, I didn't want to uh, – I didn't really even audition, right. so to speak. So I'd rather – I did it kind of organically, if you will. Well, I'm going to ask you just to define what does organic way mean how, in terms of your – I hate to use the word process because everybody now, it's the process. It's the process. But what is your process? Well, my process essentially is um, – again, for me, it's uh, personal connections. Uh, if there are, uh, you know, if I hear that there's uh, open calls in the city, uh, I don't go because I don't know anybody. I'd rather 
associate with uh, filmmakers that I know. Let me give a name. Fred Carpenter. For people who don't know who Fred Carpenter is, who is Fred Carpenter? And feel free to go on because he's really prolific, but for the audience that doesn't know about him and what he does, give us a really good overview. Sure. Fred actually uh, started in film as far as I know. I think he was he graduated from Stony Brook University. He was actually going uh, – I think he went into pre-med, but I don't know what happened, but he, he – Decided to go for film. Maybe he didn't like the, the sight of blood. Uh, well, <laughs> that's funny you said that because a lot of his movies are, are crime thrillers. I think his first film was in 1986. And I'm not sure if that was a feature or not. I think it was, I think it was a short. And I think it was in 88 or 89, uh, he did his uh, first feature film. And uh, ever since, uh, Fred has done about 25 or 26 films. At, at least, at uh, least. At least over the years. So he's been the longest lasting uh, steady producer, uh, director, and writer uh, across Long Island. I don't think there's anybody, anybody else who's been doing this for, what is that, like 33 years or more. Well, since he wears three hats, what was it like working with him on the set and even before in terms of preparation? I, I think it was around 20 years ago that I got cast in a Fred Carpenter movie. Uh, it was a short called Joey Sent Me. And uh, this is just a story about uh, me and Fred. And he had recently just come off of two feature films with him. but uh, And there had been a span of years where I never was in a Fred movie again until, you know, a couple of years ago. So we're shooting this uh, short film. It was a crime scene in Babylon at a coffee shop. I remember that... Oh, there must have been about 18, 20 people in the room, okay? It was kind of a big crew. I remember that Fred was about maybe 12, 15 feet from me. Okay. And it was going to be, I'm not sure if the shot on me was going to be a medium or a close-up. So I raised my hands up and I, I put one hand under my chin and one hand over my head. And I said, Fred, Fred, I'm trying to get his attention. I said, is this shot going to be like this? And I raised my hand over my head higher, or, and then I, and I raised it lower. Is it going to be like this? And he looked at me, and he just pointed his finger at me, and he, he, he barreled right at me. He says, just don't say anything. Just be quiet. Be quiet. Don't say a word. And I was totally taken off by that. I was, I was in shock. I, I don't think he got that I was just right. looking for technique. So I remember it was a short time after that. He and I got to talk, talking, at a, I guess, at a network meeting or a film festival. And I explained to him, I said, Fred, I said, do you remember when you did that to me? He goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, I, 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 vaguely, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I said, I, I, I was so mortified that you did that because everybody in the room just stopped and stared. And they didn't know what was going to go on. I said, and in my mind, I said, I just envisioned charging at you like a fullback, lifting you up, throwing you over my shoulders, and smashing through the front plate glass window. And he looked at me and his eye, he just, he, he, I could tell he was in shock. Of course, that was just in my fantasy mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as I said, uh, recently, uh, a few years ago, Fred had gotten in touch with me because he saw a, uh, a short film I was in and he uh, wanted to know if I wanted a role in this um, film, um, Honor Amongst Men. So 
we got to talking and I said, Fred, you've made quite a few movies over the last stretch of uh, 18, 20 years or so. I, I said, I never heard from you. He goes, to be honest with you, you scared me so much. <laughs> he goes, I, 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 I didn't know, you know, what you were capable of, you know? And I, and I said, well, Fred, I was just sharing with you my, uh, my it was my fantasy mind, you know? Uh, so he had uh, spoke to one of the directors from the short film, and he asked, you know, how was it working with Francis? And the guy said it was fine. It was no problem. And that's how it, uh, that's how I got back into the loop uh, with Fred after a stretch. Yeah, I find actors very interesting as people. And I'll, I'll tell you why. My guess is Francis like, and we're talking about his world of independent films, that I look a lot, a lot of the actors, and sometimes I think they live in their characters, and they embody their characters. A classic example, Daniel Day-Lewis is a classic example of that. And I wonder if they're more comfortable portraying a character than who they truly, really are. And that's why they're great at what they do, but sometimes there's something missing in the core of their essence. Which Do you agree or disagree with that? Completely agree with you on that. I mean, you, you, hit, you hit that right on, right on target. Um, yeah, uh, f for me at least, acting is a, just a wonderful way to uh, express uh, perhaps uh, different sides you don't even know about yourself, uh, and you get to explore them. Uh, so, uh, which you, which you wouldn't normally do in, in real life. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I I can relate to that. There's a new film coming out uh, starring Joaquin Phoenix. The Joker, and it's engendering an interesting conversation. And it's, it says to me, what is artistic expression and what are the parameters of that? And do you ever cross over that line? Because there's a theater in Colorado where there was a shooting in the theater years ago, and I'm not going to show the Joker there. And they're putting other theaters on heightened alert in terms of security based on one person who's going to see the film The Joker, which is very violent, and then take it to the next level. How far as an artist would you go? How far should a filmmaker go? And are there any boundaries? Oh, it's interesting too. Um, anytime I've played a, um, a dark character or a quote unquote a bad guy, so to speak, um, I, I, I kind of get so engrossed in, in the character way prior to shooting Right. Way, way prior to shooting. And I realized that it actually starts to affect your head uh, in the sense that you start to, you don't even realize it, but you're starting to think like a, a particular character. And this is way before you even shoot, when you're just uh, studying for the role. And then when, because uh, I, I, I could see more or less like the danger in that in a way. You know, once a, uh, a shoot is over, you, you have to like withdraw from that. At least I find it's it's a bit of a withdrawal. It's like, whew, I got to, like, you know, uh, take this suit off. You know, it's, I think of marathon runners. You know, the, the, this is marathon season, the Chicago Marathon, Berlin Marathon just happened recently. There's some marathons at the World Championships and, of course, the granddaddy, New York City Marathon. And you marathoners are spend months and months and months in preparation. And then the day of the event happens and whether they run their best time or their worst time and they finish. But when they, once they cross the finish line, 
an interesting psychological study. Sometimes there's a degree of depression because they're saying, I put so much time, so much effort into this. It's over. What do I do? What's next? That, that yes, absolutely. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a bit of, uh, as you, as you described, but perhaps, uh, uh, depression or a, or a little bit of a letdown because you, you just build up to these, um, these characters, you know, as I said, you, sometimes you gotta be careful. You get so gro- engrossed mm-hmm. in these characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once it's over, uh, yeah, it, it can be kind of like a, a letdown cause you gotta, you gotta, you got to circle on back to yourself, you know, whoever you are, and get comfortable in your own head again, so to speak. And but then, of course, you you wait for the next uh, opportunity and explore that. And we had a mutual friend also involved in the film world named Chris Cook, Suffolk County Film Commission. He did some uh, cameos in some Hal Hartley films, and uh, he knew that I was a big fan of Edie Falco because I was watching her series Oz, the prison drama. And says, when Chris comes to me, I know Edie, L- let me call her and see if she's available to do an interview with you uh, first on the radio. So a few days prior to the interview, I get a telephone call at my home, and it's Edie Falco. And he says, Larry, can we please reschedule? Of course, I have no problem doing that, but I asked why. She says, right now I'm doing something called The Sopranos. And I said, you know, Edie, you're a gifted actress. I love you and Oz, but I don't see you in the role of a series about opera singers. And then she kind of laughed and said, no, this is a crime story and we're shooting it in uh, New Jersey. And of course, The Sopranos became The Sopranos. You also have had an experience with Edie Falco. Tell us about that. Yes, yes. Our, uh, we were ships that had passed through the night quickly one time, so to speak. It was a, uh, it was a film uh, called Judy Berlin. Eric Mendelssohn's film. Right, yeah. Eric Mendelssohn's film. And uh, I remember I uh, was one of the casting directors. I actually, I, I know through networking, had called me up, uh, contacted me one evening. And she says, listen, uh, you, you want to you participate in this film, this future film? Um, I asked her briefly what it was about. And she was, you got to be at uh, this furniture store in uh, Massapequa on Sunrise Highway, at, you know, very early in the morning. So I had no idea who uh, uh, Edie Falco was. So this particular scene, she was having a dream, and I was her dream dancer. So I had to show up in a tuxedo. So I get to this furniture store, and there's you know all the crew around and everything, and they had the uh, all the food outside behind the uh, furniture store, and so I moseyed on in, and uh, somebody said said to me, you know, uh, the actress you're going to be working with, Edie's in the, the back room back there. Know, prepping, you know, with makeup and right. hair and so on. So, so I said, all right, let me go back there and see who this young lady is. So I went inside and I saw who she was and I said, hey, how you doing? I said, uh, I'm Francis. I'm going to be your dream dancer. And she goes, oh, hi, you know, how you doing? And uh, So I pat her on her head and I said, uh, I have an idea. I said, how about we get up? I said, and uh, we dance prepare for this she said sure so we got up and we started dancing around in this uh you know little green room and uh then i asked her you want to do it again she said sure so we we danced again and then it was time for us to go out there and uh in the middle of this uh furniture store this dream sequence they had a piano there and we danced around and swirled around and uh i guess eric did uh about two takes 
which only lasted, I guess, about uh, 25 seconds to 30 seconds of take. And uh, it was done. It was over. So uh, <laughs> I remember I remember when they had the screening at the Cinema Arts Center. And, in Huntington. Uh, yeah, I'm no, sorry. Yeah, in Huntington. And uh, Edie was there, of course, and, and Eric and other people. And I'm telling everybody about this, you know, because I started, people started to tell me, you know, that she, I think, I'm not sure if, it, I don't know if that was 1998 or 99, but I think they did the pilot, I think, to The Sopranos at that point. And so I was like, oh, wow. So this is, you know, some up and coming woman who's, uh, you know, maybe getting a series. I said, that's terrific. And uh, so I'm telling everybody, you know, you got to come to this film. I got this great, great scene, this great role. And I, Managed to get a lot of people to show up, and uh, Eric cut it down to like six seconds. <laughs> you know? I remember I said, and when it was over, I said, Eric, I said, you know, what happened? You shot for about a minute. I said, I thought it was going to be longer than that. He goes, don't worry. He goes, I'll recut it, and we'll, we'll play it in slow motion. <laughs> that was, uh, anyway, that, that, was, uh, that was my experience, one and only experience with uh, my ship, uh, crossing paths with uh, it's funny you talk about networking and Edie comes out of SUNY Purchase and that whole group out there became players in the film industry Nick Gomez a whole bunch of other people that yeah. all started when she went to college and of course she also grew up in, in, in Northport and that's where the famous Gunther's Bar is Right, where Jack Kerouac used to hang out in his last days before he left uh, Long Island. So right. there's, there's a lot of history surrounding a lot of people in your orbit. How important is a scene partner in what you do? Because that sequence was very small and you were dancing. But in terms of dialogue going back and forth and the trust factor, how important is that scene partner? Very. Um, you have to support each other. In my head, I don't know if this is what you mean, but uh, you mean with the dialogue flowing back and forth with, with the characters? Yeah, yeah. I, but you know what? Quite honestly, take that question wherever you want to go. I know what I meant, but I'm curious for what you think I meant. I, I was thinking that what you meant is uh, how important, I think you said, is the dialogue? Well, just uh, the interaction with uh, the scene partners. Well, because you're, you're in it together. Yeah, you're in it together, and uh, in my head, you, you, you want to support each other from uh, beat to beat to moment to moment and uh, make it work for each other, for sure. No, I'm just curious yeah. for, for the process, because yeah. you see a lot of stuff, people saying that you know, this person was integral to my part and I really need them, and sometimes you see people are totally separate. They read, they read their part, and it stops, and then the person, person reads another part, and the director cuts it in. So I was more curious about the technology of it behind the movie business and how this is all put together. Well, um, yeah. Well, you want to do your, you want to do your part well. You want to uh, support each other in your scenes together. Um, obviously, you want to be the character. You want to support the story. You want to support the director. And uh, if you do that job well, and if it all flows into how the director is envisioning this with. Uh, his or her uh, editor, uh, you, you'll you'll be more so in the film than to be uh, cut out of the film. You know, I mean, is what you're talking about is uh, the, the technique of shooting. That's right. You That's know, right. Uh, which is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there could be a one shot on you, then a one shot on me, then over your shoulder, over my shoulder, then a two shot. Uh, of course, doing the the same uh, dialogue and movement and motions and so on, and uh, and then of course that's all cut up in the editing process to make a scene that, that that mini story flow 
I want to switch gears a little bit because you've had a lot of different things happen in your life. And we haven't talked in quite a few years, but we were talking. You were very involved in Irish culture. Catch me up. Yeah, well, um, my uh, well, my, my great my great grandparents had uh, come from Ireland uh, on both sides. Genealogy started coming on really big one about ten years ago. I would say people were starting getting getting involved. Yeah, the whole twenty three so. and Me things and where your family history and all that. Yeah, that's, it's quite popular now. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And uh, so I uh, started. Well, I was going to a um, a school. Uh, well, actually, it was a the AOH in Babylon, and they had uh, Irish language classes, and I, w- I would attend. And yeah, you know, of course, you know, you you want to find out more about your your own history uh, of uh, you know your your European your origins, if you will. And um, so I had I'd gone to Ireland a few times, and I would go to uh, I'd go to the West Coast, you know, the Irish speaking areas. And I uh, came up with the idea of presenting uh, Irish language, you know, they call it the Gaelic, if you will, uh, and incorporating that with the Long Island Film Festival because eventually I had partnered with uh, Chris Cook uh, from 2005 to 2009. So I came up with this idea, why don't we have like a a mini mini presentation festival within the festival called uh, Culture Fest Nagelda. And... um, so I contacted the, uh, I think it was a Kerry Film Festival in uh, County Kerry, Ireland, and I explained to them I wanted to do an exchange. We'll send you some films from here. You send us your films. And uh, so we had a, uh, a separate uh, presentation in the festival of Irish language films, uh, shorts. The, the language was uh, in, in the Irish, ancient Irish uh, language. Uh, that fascinates me. I'll tell you why. There's something called the language of blood. And what it says to me is no matter where you are now in this country, you came from someplace else, whether you're first generation, second generation, third generation, whatever. But you can't escape your cultural history and your background. Do you sense that in yourself because you just talked about your Irish heritage, that a part of you that informs you whether or not you can verbalize it all the time is still there in terms of your DNA and what I call the language of blood? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, my mom, <laughs> uh, God rest her soul, she always impressed upon me. You know, you're Irish. You know, you're you're you have a history of uh, coming from an Irish uh, bloodline, which of course made me interested in uh, finding out about Ireland and so on and the culture. And uh, so years later, when uh, I found out they had their own language, that that really fascinated me. For, for the actor, how different is film and being on the stage? Because they're two very different mediums. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. The, uh, I, on stage, um, one must uh, be what they say bigger, and that's true. You know, with your, with your voice, your, your projecting, uh, your movements uh, for the most part, whereas in film, a completely different uh, – experience uh, for, for an audience so you have to you have to know actually you have to know different shots you have to know right. what the story is you have to tone it down or or bring it up and uh, it, it is true as I said that uh, you know first whatever your scene is or lines first think what this is what this what this means is this this dialogue or this moment first really think it 
and then speak it because that'll come through, uh, uh, steeping your, oneself into a, into a character and becoming the character, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And unfortunately, our moments with you have been quite precious. I want to thank my guest, Francis Like. I'm Larry Davidson. You've been listening to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. Thanks, Larry. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.